We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome the Vice President of Utilization Management and Quality at Christiana Care, Dr. Raj Sabaya. He's here with our new series on Patient Safety Indicators, PSI. We'll also learn more about the 2023 E&M guideline and code updates from Colleen Deegan Ejack. Lori Johnson delivers her coding report. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who says only pay for what you need, but you can never have too much good stuff, Chuck Buck. You're so right, Clark Thank you very much. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 527th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. <laughs> and good morning, Erica. <laughs> good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Hey, you know, we've been talking about this for weeks and weeks, and now it's happening. Yes, you're referring to the new series today on patient safety indicators with Dr. Raj Sabaya from Christianicare. You're right. Dr. Sabaya is here, and then we're going to have others from Christianicare in future broadcasts, all here at Talk to Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank you so much for bringing this very timely and vitally important topic to our listeners' attention, as well as our readers. Well, actually, one of our listeners brought it to our attention, and uh, I'm really looking forward to learning more myself about patient safety indicators and how to address them. Very good, very good. And uh, speaking of uh, looking forward to pieces, what is your uh, talkback today? I'm going to be addressing the new AHIMA Actus Query Brief today in a little bit more detail. We look forward to hearing that practice brief, of course, and we have a lot of news coming your way, and we begin, of course, with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck, and CMS just released the 2023 star ratings for Part D Medicare Advantage plans. Part D plans cover prescription drug plans purchased by Medicare recipients. These ratings were designed to allow Medicare recipients to make better judgments when selecting a Medicare replacement plan. The biggest change is that the weight of patient experience complaints and access measures has increased from two to four for 2023. CMS also introduced what it calls guardrails in the 2023 star ratings for all measures that have been put in the Part C and D star rating program for more than three years, except for the consumer assessment and healthcare providers and and system uh, caps survey and the Part C and Part D improvement measures. My concern is that for the majority of Medicare recipients, the choice of selecting a Part D plan should really be determined based on the following considerations instead of the star rating of the plan. First are the medications that they are taking in the drug formulary of the Part D plan that they're selecting. Two, does the plan contract with their local pharmacy? Three, if the recipient needs to have their drugs mailed to them, does the plan provide for that service? Four, do, I, do they want extra protection for high-priced drugs? Five, is the deductible of the plan, what is the deductible of the plan they're selecting? And finally, does the plan have gap coverage uh, for a cost? Just as a test, I decided to look for a Medicare Part D plan on the internet. Based on my unofficial testing, some of the frustrations facing seniors include, First, searches for plans often land seniors on websites that require them to enter their email and often a phone number. Rather than an email back, this often turns into a sales call from the plan. Users of the sites must also provide personal information, including the medications they are taking. To me, this feels very invasive. And finally, seniors may hear conflicting messages from plan sales staff that work with competing plans. 
instead of a star rating, it seems to me that CMS needs to make provide the ability to compare the plans easier for seniors. It would also help if CMS offered a tool that allowed seniors to make the choices that best fit their personal budgets. We can only hope. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. And it's Tuesday. It's October the 18th. And you're listening to the 527th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Do you have questions? We have answers. If you're searching for hard-to-find answers about coding cardiology, laboratory, radiology, and respiratory, search no more. The subject matter experts at MedLearn Media provide answers to these tough questions each week, answers that will help safeguard accurate coding and save reimbursement. Get answers to these and other questions weekly when you subscribe to the Compliance Question of the Week. That's right. The Compliance Question of the Week from MedLearn Media provides answers to help you overcome compliance challenges, reduce operational waste, and optimize healthcare. Subscribe now to the Compliance Question of the Week and find answers to coding questions on cardiology, radiology, laboratory, and respiratory. From MedLearn Media, it's the questions you need answered, delivered each week to your email inbox. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. There are many classification and terminologies in healthcare, and they all have a purpose. On Talk 10 Tuesday, we focus on ICD-10-CM and PCS. ICD-10 is the classification system used to report diagnoses on the UB04. The classification system is also used to assign hierarchical condition categories. These codes are, the I, I should say, the ICD-10-CM codes are updated in April and October each year. The classification is managed by the National Center for Health Statistics. ICD-10-PCS is used to report inpatient procedures on the UBO4 and is also updated in April and October. Some codes impact the assignment of MSDRGs and APRDRGs. It is managed by the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. Other terminologies that are used in healthcare include ICD-11, which is administered by the World Health Organization. The classification became effective on January 1, 2022, and 35 countries are using it. The U.S. has not adopted ICD-11 at this time. CPT is a terminology for surgical procedures, radiology, lab tests, rehabilitation therapies, patient visits, etc. The codes are used by physician offices and hospitals to report services on claims. The hospital uses these codes on the charge master. The five-digit codes may be augmented by two-digit modifiers. These codes are released quarterly by the American Medical Association. Nomen CT is systematized nomenclature of medicine. Clinical terms is a complete clinical terminology, which is multilingual for electronic health records. The terminology is used in over 80 countries. National Drug Codes, or NDC, focuses on the packaging of the drug. These codes are frequently included in charge masters and formularies. 
The codes are administered by the Federal Drug Administration and have 10 digits that are reported in three sections. This is not an exhaustive list. It is important to understand the classifications and terminologies that are used by your electronic medical record and that the data is being pulled from the source of truth. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Lori Johnson. Excellent report. Returning once again with our popular series on the 2023 E&M Code Updates is senior healthcare consultant Colleen Digany. Jack, good morning, Colleen. Welcome back. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to the Talk Dead and Tuesday listeners. Um, I've been reporting for the past uh, six or seven weeks the American Medical Association's major revisions to E&M services for January 1st, 2023, and today's discussion is regarding prolonged services. Uh, there are some pretty significant changes, including a deleted subcategory, of course, the E&M codes within that subcategory, a revised uh, title to two subcategories, and a brand new code for reporting prolonged services in the inpatient observation or nursing facility setting. So to start, the subcategory prolonged services without direct patient contact will be deleted for 2023. The CPC codebook provides parenthetical notes to report prolonged services on the date of the encounter for outpatient, home or resident, cognitive assessment and care plan with the existing E&M code 99417, or for prolonged services in an inpatient observation or nursing facility setting with the new E&M code. That is being uh, still to be determined. It's currently 990X3. The E&M subcategory prolonged services without direct patient conduct has been revised and will be titled prolonged services on a date other than the face-to-face E&M service without direct patient contact. There remain two E&M codes in this, in this subcategory, 99358 for the first hour and 99359 for each additional 30 minutes. With these two codes, they're used when a prolonged service without direct patient contact is provided on a date other than the date of the face-to-face E&M service, and that could be before or after the date of the service. They can be used to report prolonged services without direct patient contact for any E&M service, whether or not time was used to select that level of service. And of course, they must be related to a service for which a face-to-face patient contact has occurred or will occur, and of course, related to ongoing patient management. And the big change for 2023, a new E&M code is being established for reporting prolonged services in the inpatient observation or nursing facility settings. This new E&M code currently identified by the AMA as 993XO will be in the subcategory of prolonged services with or without patient contact on the date of an E&M service. So this subcategory will have two E&M codes, the existing code created in 2021 for prolonged services, the 99417, used to report prolonged total time on the date of an office or other outpatient services, and this new code, 993XO, for reporting prolonged services, again, in the inpatient observation or nursing facility settings. In both cases, for 99417 or this new code, 993XO, the primary service must have been selected using time 
The total time is 15 minutes beyond the required time to report the highest level of primary service, and only after that time required to report the highest level of service has been exceeded by 15 minutes. Now, from a CMS perspective, the 2023 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule came out in July, uh, proposes to adopt most of the AMA or the American Medical Association's changes to the CPT book, which include adopting the revised guidelines for these 2023 E&M visits, the general framework such that, that the physician or the non-physician practitioner would use time or medical decision-making to select the level of service and that a medically appropriate history and physical should be documented, but not um, a decision around the level of service. And then the list of qualifying activities that count towards total time identified by the AMA was also adopted um, in this proposed rule. What the CMS, the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule did not propose to adopt was using code 993X0. They believe that the code and reporting instructions will lead to administrative complexity, potentially duplicative payments, and limit their ability to determine how much time was spent with the patient using claims data, which is a common method for CMS analysis. So instead of 993XO, CMS is proposing three new G-codes for reporting prolonged services for 2023. So G code, they, they're still yet to be completely identified. So GXXX1 to be used for hospital, inpatient, or observation care. GXXX2 for proposing uh, for prolonged services in the nursing facility. And GXXX3 for prolonged services in the home or residence. In all cases, of course, beyond the total time for the primary service. Uh, there is within the, there is a table in the proposed rule of the time thresholds that are in the Federal Register. And you can read in detail the CMS table uh, along with all of the changes being proposed to the physician fee schedule for 2023. And I encourage you to watch for the final rule for the physician fee schedule. We expect that to be published sometime in early November. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Colleen. Please stick around because I'm sure we're going to have some questions at the end during our town hall. That was Colleen Deegan-Ejak, Senior Healthcare Consultant for 3M Health. Chuck? Thank you very much, Erica, and be sure to read Colleen's reports on the 2023 E&M Code updates in the ICD-10 Monitor. We begin the first in our series on the vitally important and timely topic of patient safety indicators, PSIs. And joining us now is the Vice President of Utilization Management and Quality at Christiana Care, Dr. Frijanishan Subaya. So good morning, Dr. Subaya, and welcome to Talking Tuesday, and thank you very much for helping us to launch our series here on PSIs. And what has captured our attention is the multidisciplinary team approach that you've implemented at Christiana Care. Could you talk to us about that? Sure. Thanks, Chuck. So, you know, physicians take the Hippocratic Oath in medical school to do no harm. But despite their best intentions, many physicians unwittingly report harm through their documentation. It is unreasonable to expect physicians to know all of the thousands of inclusion and exclusion codes that may trigger a patient safety indicator. The key in managing PSIs is a multidisciplinary review that involves physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and coding professionals. In 2019, Christiana Care's publicly available data showed that we were purportedly performing several standard deviations worse than the national mean on PSI-3 and the resulting PSI-90 composite. 
When we brought this back to our clinical leadership, we realized that this data was not reflective of the high quality care being delivered by our caregivers on a daily basis. We identified documentation and coding as the biggest opportunity for improvement. Our performance on externally reported ranking programs and the associated financial penalties served as our burning platform for change. First, we had to ensure alignment with our finance team, physicians, and coders. We convinced our finance team to hold these charts prior to billing for PSI review, and we promised a 48-hour turnaround time with a query escalation process if needed. We engaged our physicians by showing them the relationship between PSIs, ongoing provider performance evaluation, or OPPE, and recredentialing. We also shared the reports that showed that we were underperforming compared to our peer hospitals. Lastly, we needed to engage our coding team. We shared with them the externally reported data and provided clinical validation support by having a dedicated CDI nurse reviewer and CDI physician advisor. Our multidisciplinary team understood the shared responsibility they had in this process, and we were able to achieve alignment among all elements of our revenue cycle. Our goal was to achieve 100% pre-bill review on any charts with a potential PSI. The heart of our process involves a multi-step review. Our coding software flags potential PSI cases, and these are put on a pre-bill hold for CDI review. The CDI team and physician advisor evaluate for missed codes and querying opportunities. Every case is discussed with the discharging physician before the query is sent to make sure they understand the choices and the reasons for the query. If a query still persists at this stage or a PSI still persists, it is escalated to our senior leadership team for review. If a PSI is cleared at any stage, it can be released. But if a PSI persists after senior leadership review, it is final coded with a communication to the clinical team to evaluate for clinical improvement opportunities. PSI data is reviewed monthly to make sure our coded claims match our externally reported claims. This process has delivered tremendous results. We have seen our PSI 90 scores decrease precipitously. We can now reliably say that these metrics are an accurate reflection of the care being delivered at our organization. Our clinical leaders now have confidence in our data, and this allows our quality team to look upstream and engage in conversations around clinical opportunities for improvement. And that's all I have. Thanks, Erica. Wow. That was so exciting to start this off. And, and the one thing I'm going to do here before we, we're going to get to questions at the end, but I want to make sure that people understand um, that patient safety three is the pressure ulcer rate and patient safety uh, PSI 90 is the patient safety and adverse events composite metric. Um, so we will get back to you. I know that we're going to have questions. I know I have some questions, um, but that was great. That was the Vice President of Utilization Management and Quality at Christiana Care, Dr. Raj Subaya. Chuck. Thank you, Erica, and thank you, Dr. Subaya. And folks, be sure to read the two reports on patient safety indicators. You're going to find those reports in today's ICD-10 monitor. And a program reminder, you're listening to the 527th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday for Tuesday, October the 18th. Stand by. We'll be right back. High-quality clinical documentation plays an essential role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. The Essentials for a Clinical Documentation Integrity book 
uses a three-step approach to cover possible clinical indicators, risk factors, and treatments, all of which enable effective chart reviews and physician queries. The Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity Book is the easiest and fastest navigation of any CDI how-to resource. Here's good news. When you purchase the book, you'll receive absolutely free the webcast, Severe Malnutrition, Increasing Coding Compliance with Clinical Validation. That's a $149 value. Purchase the book, Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity, and get a free webcast, Severe Malnutrition, Increase Coding Compliance with Clinical Validation. That's a $149 value. Take advantage of this offer. Enter discount code FI031722 at checkout. Here now is Dr. Erica Reamer and her very popular segment here at Talk Tent Tuesday. It is called Talk Back, and it features, of course, the very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Good morning again, Dr. Reamer. It's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. First, I'd like to give a shout-out to the American College of Physician Advisors, who just held their inaugural Essentials and Fundamentals course for Physician Advisors. Um, it was really an amazing course, and there were great speakers, and it was so fun to meet so many physician advisors, new and experienced from across the country. It was really a great experience, um, and I'm glad I was able to participate. Okay, so Actus and AHIMA's Joint Practice Brief, Guidelines for Achieving a Compliant Query Practice, the 2022 update, was released on Monday, October 10th, 2022, and in fact, it uh, made one of my uh, slides uh, obsolete, which was very annoying, but what can you do? Anyway, last week, I asserted that it's our industry's best practice standard, and this week, I want to explore a few interesting details. On page 4, Roman numeral 2M states that a query may be, quote, um, necessary to clarify a diagnosis on an ancillary note that has been signed by a provider. They continue, for example, um, if the nutrition note states severe malnutrition, and the note is signed by the provider, but the provider does not address the diagnosis within their documentation, a query may be needed. So that's the end uh, end of the quote. And this is saying that a signature on someone else's note may not be sufficient. Not saying that you have to query, but it's saying that a query may be needed. And to me, malnutrition exemplifies this. So the dietitian does their assessment and organization channels it over to the provider for a signature, thinking that that's going to make their life easy. If the provider doesn't do some sort of an attestation and or bring the diagnosis into their documentation, this could generate a query. The question is, is it a clinically valid diagnosis? The best practice would be for the provider to bring the diagnosis in, how they came to that conclusion, what their plans for treatment of the condition are into the progress note. The goal isn't just to get credit for making the diagnosis. It is to render excellent clinical care to a malnourished patient. Other sections note that queries and templates should not include titles, which could be construed as leading or identifying a desired diagnosis that is not already documented. These titles should not include impactful information such as reimbursement or quality implications. For instance, if a patient has an infection and organ dysfunction but no mention of sepsis has been made in the record, 
a query entitled sepsis would be inappropriate. Let me make sure this is clear. A query trying to determine whether sepsis was present is not inappropriate. Titling the query sepsis would be leading. Dr. James Kennedy brought to my attention a change. The previous version warned against using uncertain diagnosis words in query response choices unless the query was at or post-discharge. The newest iteration recommends avoidance of terms of uncertainty unless the provider has already used one themselves. I think best practice is to educate your providers into knowing that uncertainty is an option and let them insert their own uncertainty into their documentation when they want to. Does your electronic medical record notate CC, MCC, or HCC next to diagnoses? The practice brief states that even in a problem list, elements which reflect financial reimbursement or quality impact should not be identifiable. I think this is also pertinent when I have seen final diagnoses also have those components included. CC, MCC, HCC, PSI, mortality variables are fine for education, but they have no place in documentation or diagnosis lists. This practice brief says with its outside voice that physician advisors should not be querying. Only providers who are delivering direct care to a patient during an encounter may be queried. And I have to go back and I have to fix that. I said this wrong. What it says with its outside voice is that that physician advisors should not be queried. I don't think they should be doing queries either, but they should not be queried. Only the providers who are delivering direct care to a patient during an encounter are allowed to be queried. This is different than the utilization management realm where physician advisors are integral to the process and actually may chart on a patient um, even if they haven't provided direct patient care. A compliant query, which which has been asked, answered, and is part of the permanent health record, can be coded. The response is not mandated to be repeated in the health record. It also notes that queries must either be part of the medical legal health record or be retrievable in the business record. My personal leaning is towards not necessarily putting it in the medical legal health record, but I'm not adamant. My reasoning is Queries are always discoverable. If you're confident that your CDCs invariably do compliant queries, then including them in the medical legal record may be satisfactory. However, if you would like to make the payers or government work to find noncompliance, then do not include them in the official permanent record. However queries are handled, best practice, especially concurrently, is to incorporate diagnoses arrived on through query into the subsequent documentation. It's always preferable to see a diagnosis more than once in a record and more than just as a response to a query to support inclusion as a secondary diagnosis. The practice brief is adamant that even queries generated by technology must be compliant. CDCs who use computer-assisted technology must distinguish between legitimate query opportunities and inappropriate triggers, and real-time computer-assisted physician documentation and auto-generated artificial intelligence queries are bound by the same rules for compliant query design as the human being-generated ones. Such a well-done thesis. It is a great job, Axis and Ahima. Thank you for clear and reasonable guidance, and back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Erica, very much. 
we only got a couple of minutes left, so Erica, let's take a look. I think we want to get a comment from Pauline. Pauline, I think you think you wanted to say something about uh, Christianity here. Yeah, thanks, Erica. I just was listening, you know, and I come from the coding and reporting side of things. Um, and as a former, you know, CDI director, I think the, um, you know, I just loved hearing that, you know, the the organization Christiana Care looked holistically because there is a lot of times pressure. These these PSIs often are what we call high dollars, and we closely watch what's called DNFB, which is discharged, not final build patients. So it's kind of the life and breath of a daily coder's world, and that that they went to that complete step of of you know understanding, you know. The appetite was there. I use that term appetite was there to hold those claims to make sure that the PSIs were being accurately reported. So I thought that was, you know, kudos to them for, for going through those steps because a lot of times there's a lot of pressure to get those DNFBs out the door. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay, it looks like, Dr. Uh, Subaya, we have a question here that says, um, we are one, uh, the, the listener is wondering who contacts the discharging physician to explain the PSI query choices and what um, is stated in those explanations. We initially, when we started this process, we had our physician advisor uh, reaching out to explain why, because it, uh, it was a physician-to-physician communication. Uh, but then as that time went on, our um, senior CDI specialist began to feel comfortable reaching out to the physicians. And in, at, at this stage, uh, they are the ones who, who reach out. Uh, and what we, uh, these are phone call conversations, so there's not any email or anything like that. But um, we explain the reason for it. I mean, often we get uh, physicians clicking off or not answering a query. So that's more to ensure that they answer the query and explain the reasoning behind it. So it may be POA status, it may be that there's uh, indicators for other diagnoses present, and so we explain why we're sending the query. I always believe that when you find issues like PSIs or hacks or whatever, um, or you have a denial, it's always best to make sure that the physician that sort of, uh, you know, the provider that instigated it is aware of it and given feedback because that's how you prevent the next one. So I think it's a, a great job. Um, I think that's all the time we have, so I'm going to turn it back over to you, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Erica. And that is going to be a wrap for our 527th live edition of Talked in Suzanne. I want to thank our panelists today, Colleen Deegan Ejack, Timothy Powell, Lori Johnson, Dr. Raj Shabaya from Christiana Care, who reported our lead story. And a special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all of Talked in Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and Isington Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.